This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The interest in growing food may never have been higher. Well, in one day, 800 people submitted applications for help with their backyard gardens and backyard farms. A federal program offers up to $5,000. 850 is what the state agriculture department received in the application run-up last year when the federal grants were first offered. Sharon Hud is uh, Sharon Hurd is with the State Department of Agriculture. She explains what's different this year. In the last round, the program sought to help food drought areas and included nonprofits. Not so this year. It's really for individuals looking to become more food secure, and it aims us to streamline the process. The state expects to finalize last year's contracts this month. But a word of caution, officials tell us there were eyebrows raised about plans to purchase things like top-of-the-line Yeti coolers or e-bikes, so expect scrutiny and a level of accountability. We talked to Herd ahead of a, a webinar that is scheduled today at noon. The first year of the grant was fiscal year 20. It was rolled out, and both Alaska and Hawaii went forward with uh, doing the best we could But there were so many rules and regulations that we had to follow to be sure we were implementing the program fair and equally, first time ever, to individuals. Normally, grants are offered to nonprofits or government agencies, but this one was great because it went to individuals. So we learned a lot from the first year. We are still wrapping up year one. Apologies to those who have not yet received their contracts and payments from year one. But what we learned from year one, we implemented in year two. We were very fortunate the USDA listened to us and in many cases approved the changes that we were hoping to get to make the program more user-friendly in the second year. And one of the bigger changes that we made was now you have an application. The application form is in lieu of a proposal, which is more difficult to write An application is just to fill in the box. A lot of times it's a drop-down menu. We feel very, very much more user-friendly. And the competition part of the application, which is necessary for a federal grant of this type, in year one, the competition was basically, you know, what part of the island you live on based on how many SNAP recipients are in that particular zip code or county. And we read your proposal for accuracy, and you had to be compliant with Hawaii Compliance Express, and you had to have insurance. So there were a lot of gates that you had to go through for year one. Year two, the competition is basically where do you live? Is your zip code deemed to be food insecure? How many people live in your household that will benefit from this growing of food? And how many indirect beneficiaries will benefit uh, your neighbors and community members? Those parameters are the biggest competitive piece, and it's what we call objective. It is pieces of the scoring that come from government-type data, how many people live in your household, how many people you expect to help. Then comes the, what are you going to do with the project? You know, how much, what are you going to do? Are you going to fence your yard? Are you going to build food beds? Are you going to have an aquaculture, aquaponics tower? That has some merit, but it's nothing... That is a big improvement from year one. This is an application that you just fill in and submit. So you're calling this a grant for small ag? Right. So it's backyard gardeners and small farmers? It is for individuals. You don't have to be a farmer. You can be an individual homeowner. In fact, we're encouraging households to apply. As we learned from the pandemic, you really need to have a supply of food that you can rely on until things pick back up. So farmers are encouraged, but it's mostly for home gardening, backyard farmers, food security, increase your food security, grow what you eat. Are there any other restrictions that you have on what this money can and can't be used on? The list is really vast on what it can be used on. What it can't be used for is to improve your property, capital improvement projects. The government, state and federal government both, they discourage using public money for private improvement. So if you're going to be building a water tank on your property, that that probably is going to increase the value of your property, and that would be disallowed. If you're going to build a greenhouse, which is, as we all know, important for keeping pests and weather-related events out of your garden, that is not allowed. If it's a permanent structure with a permanent flooring, it is unallowed because It is an improvement to the value of your land. You can do a high tunnel. 
you know, that one of those hoop houses. Okay. So it, that's allowed? That's allowed because it's mobile. You can actually pull it up and move it. And what about, let's say, uh, folks in Maui County that are dealing with, you know, the problem with deer? Well, for that, we recommend fencing. And from what I understand, those deer can jump over an eight-foot fence. So it would be their prerogative, right, if they choose to build a 10-foot fence to keep the deer out or the pigs, you know, whatever is attacking their, uh, their food. Okay, but that is something that is going to be allowed it is. under this grant. One of the compromises we had to make to go in this direction instead of the approved proposal format was that we would go with a fixed amount award. In other words, you have to tell us what you're going to do, and we have fixed a value to that. So if you, if you go to the application and you look at the application, on the application it tells you how much you can spend for a certain thing. Your maximum fixed amount of that award is going to be $3,000. And I didn't check it on my application, but I think it was 3000 So it's not like you can use the whole 5000 for whatever you want to do. We had to fix the amount of the award. Okay. And so with this rollout for year two, a lot of interest because it's primarily, you know, small ag gardeners and, and maybe some small farmers. But the folks that got funded last year are not eligible, and we're not doing nonprofits this year. That's right. There's so much out of the $3 million at $5,000, and you don't have to go $5,000. If you, all you need in your backyard is a trellis to grow beans, you know, then buy enough supplies to grow beans on a trellis. The part that we don't really encourage is that you find things to do to spend your money. In Alaska, they were entertaining $500 you know, applications because all people wanted was just this, and they were going to focus on this, a $1,000 system for aquaponics, okay? It wasn't like, yeah, go for the gusto and get 10000 right? and buy whatever you want. Right. Okay. But if you do take the $5,000 award, your project must be for a year. So if you say, I'm going to fence in my yard and I'm going to use, you know, I, I found the thing, the fencing mm-hmm. is $3,500 maximum. So you're going to use $3,500 for fencing, and you're going to use the other 1500 to buy trees or something. You've just spent $5,000. Your project must have results over a year. Since the interest is high, you folks are holding a webinar, and you want to be able to drive people to this webinar. If they can't tune in at that time, the webinar and all the Q&A will be available online. Correct. Until September 19th at noon. And so putting in your application on day one isn't going to get you necessarily to a decision quicker. No. In fact, our thinking was we're going to post this application early so you can read through it, send us your questions, and then we can address your questions so that you don't have an application that for whatever reason scores less. That was Sharon Hurd, who is with the State Department of Agriculture and who is overseeing the rollout of a federal program designed to help families become more food secure. The grants of up to $5,000 are for individuals who are backyard gardeners and backyard farmers who did not get awarded under last year's program. A heads up, that webinar starts at noon. If you can't join live, it will be posted with the FAQs. The application deadline is September 19th. Look for links on the conversation page of our website as that webinar begins, just as our program ends. Schools across Hawaii, from public to private schools to colleges, are back in session. HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us to talk about charter schools, though, two new schools that are preparing to join the mix. Good morning. Good morning, yes. Uh, So earlier this year, uh, the Charter School Commission, after a three-year kind of, uh, if we could call it a hiatus of sorts uh, with the COVID pandemic, have approved uh, two new schools, one on Oahu and another on Kauai's North Shore, uh, called Namahana School. And so what interested me about Namahana was that student middle school, high school students on Kauai's North Shore, if you live in like Wainiha or Hanalei, you have to travel more than an hour away to Kapa'a uh, Middle School or High School uh, just to go to school. And uh, there's limited bus service there, uh, also single lane bridges if you're familiar with Kauai's North Shore. And um, 
because parents uh, are concerned and the community wanted uh, something a little bit closer uh, to the actual, you know, where they live, mm -hmm. uh, they started a charter school uh, after previous attempts to uh, get a public school up there, which failed. Uh, they decided to go the charter school route. And uh, so now there's 39 uh, schools across the state. Um, and I spoke with uh, school officials about what it takes to start a charter school. It's not a very easy process. Charter schools are public schools. They re do receive state funding, uh, but there is a pretty rigorous application and uh, review process through the state uh, public charter school commission. But um, just to kind of give some detail about you know the everyday life of what uh, students have to face uh, going to school. Uh, I spoke with uh, Felicia Cowden, who's a Kauai council member and also lives in Kilauea, and th she had th this to say about uh, kind of the daily uh, traffic. We have one road, so Kuhio Highway southbound going into Kealia, which is just before you start to turn up to go to Kapahai, that gets very caught up in traffic during that traffic time. Here's another thing that's very important. We aren't being able to have bus drivers anymore. Bus drivers. Bus drivers, also a thing, a very real thing. Uh, you know, there's maybe a couple buses uh, that provide service uh, through the North Shore community. Uh, and if you're gonna miss a bus, uh, it's either you're, that's it, or you have one other opportunity. And that really kind of gets into the, in the way of, students uh, wanting to participate in extracurricular activities. So the hope of like Namahana School is to have them close by, you know, they can, you know, learn uh, within the community, learn, uh, they have, there's an INA-based uh, education system there that they're trying to implement as well. Uh, and uh, I also just wanted to understand a little bit better about charter schools. Uh, I attended a charter school, but had no idea what that meant. Uh, and so I spoke with uh, PJ4, who's the interim deputy director at the Public Charter School Commission, and uh, just kind of like explaining, you know, what the process looks like. You need um, a governing board. Uh, a lot of uh, charter schools have uh, nonprofits to fundraise uh, in addition to the state funding that they get. And, you know, what also came um, to of interest to me is that there's the uh, authorizer aspect of it. So charter schools operate under uh, usually a five-year contract with the state. Uh, and within that contract, they have performance metrics. They have uh, academic goals that they want to go through. They also, um, you know, just to ensure that the money is going in the right place, that the charter school is doing what they set out to do. And so PJ, um, you know, says that the charter school commission is the only authorizer in the state and that usually works in favor of us here and uh, he has this to say as far as you know the commission really taking that responsibility of an authorizer as the authorizer we are well aware of the responsibility we have to help make sure our schools are good stewards of public funds and using the funding wisely so yes we put in into the contract we make sure that there's accountability measures. And so another thing about the authorizer is that they're the ones who can negotiate and uh, award these contracts in order to operate in the state. And um, they also are the gatekeepers. They make sure that, you know, if someone who applies to become a charter school, they actually uh, will go through the whole process and they're advocates and also uh, kind of uh, watchdogs of sorts of uh, public money. Well, uh, do these schools that uh, got the okay from the commission, I mean, do they have a facility already? W where are we at with that? Uh, so uh, the one on Oahu does have a facility, uh, I believe it's in Kalihi, uh, that used to be uh, a, a school prior uh, right. to this school. Namahana actually has a 99-year lease uh, up in Kilauea around Kalihiwai. And uh, they still have to wait to build their uh, facilities right now. Okay, uh, so it's going to be a while before these uh, schools open their doors? Yes. So right now, this is the, just the next step of the process. They got approved for two years, and this is where the rubber meets the road instead of the theoretical application side of things. This is when they're going to hire teachers. They're going to build their facilities. This is where they get everything all in line. And after that two years, uh, the State Charter School Commission will come in make sure that all the everything is good to go, and then they'll sign that contract. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Casey. Thank you. We have been hearing from Casey Harlow about a couple of new charter schools uh, that have the green light. They are working to open their doors. You can find his stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Island Community Health Center, a merger of Bay Clinic and West Hawaii Community Health Center, now providing comprehensive health care on Hawaii Island. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Rabbi Steve Leader, author of For You When I Am Gone. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about essential questions to tell a life story. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Today's Reality Check takes a look at dysfunction in a state watchdog agency of sorts. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Kevin Dayton is on the line today. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Yeah, so uh, we are talking about the state auditor's office today. Yes, we are. And uh, maybe a, a quick background would, would help a little bit about the, about the office itself. Um, you can think of the office of the auditor as being a fact-finding arm of the state legislature as a, a crew of lawyers, analysts, CPAs, and they go out and review records and performance of state departments and then produce reports for the legislature and the public. And those reports are a really big deal because sometimes they reveal wrongdoing, misuse of public funds, inefficiencies, and so on. They can also reveal potential problems and help the departments to get back on track if necessary. And they help lawmakers to exercise oversight as they deal with each administration. So the office is critical. Yeah, and and the auditor generally generates reports uh, at the end of the year to help lawmakers as they make decisions about certain bills in certain areas. Exactly. Budgeting and so on. And in this particular case, unfortunately, it sometimes takes an awfully long time to find out what is happening inside agencies such as the auditor's office. And this is kind of a classic case. What happened here is uh, reporter Nick Ruby at Civil Beat heard more than six years ago that there had been an investigation into problems in the state auditor's office. But when he asked for a copy of the report in 2016, that request was denied. And what followed was a long, drawn-out legal scrap, and it took until now, six years later, that the Attorney General's office was finally forced to make public an investigation into what was happening in that office, basically in the time frame from 2014 through 2016. We finally got there, but this whole ugly process really raises serious questions about openness in state government in Hawaii, and this is a problem. There's no question about it. And we should point out that uh, the head of that office, Jan Yamani, uh, left. She's now the head of the City Ethics Commission. Correct. That's correct, yes. So basically, in the in the years that have followed with that court fight and, and the dispute over whether or not the report would be made public, Jan Yamane uh, was replaced with the current state auditor, Les Kondo, and Jan's uh, top management team was replaced as well. So basically, it's a new slate, but, but only now do we find out, uh, you know, what was actually going on in that in that office. So what was the upshot? Well, the upshot was that it's this monster 556-page report, and it it basically alleges that Jan Yamani was running an office that had deteriorated into what they call an offensive work environment, the legal term, and and, uh, was characterized by low morale and favoritism, and that the office produced sensationalized audit reports, which for people like you and me is particularly on point because, you know, we rely on those reports to to get a sense as to what's happening in state government. Um, That that to get that report actually required two trips to the state Supreme Court on behalf of the Civil Beat Law Center um, and to finally spring that loose and to get a sense of as to what was going on. The, the court itself described the results of the investigation as explosive and finally ordered release, saying that, you know, the public had a right to review um, the allegations against Shimani and her top, top managers. And, you know, to talk about some of the things that, that the report found, the complaint starting in about late 2014 um, basically alleged a, a hostile work environment, harassment, and discrimination. Um, the redacted version of the report that was made public uh, last week cited no low morale in the office, um, with one employee observing, uh, and this is a quote, the office under Yamani is going downhill badly and quickly. You know, senior and experienced staff are leaving, which puts severe strain on the remaining staff, uh, according to the report. And then also there was an issue as to whether or not the top management in the office was actually competent. They were editing reports that the staff believed they were not competent to produce themselves. Um, And then there were also complaints from departments, which is kind of to be expected. You know, if a department gets a bad audit, you would think that they would complain about it. 
Uh, but in this case, the staff was agreeing with the departments, essentially saying that the, the conclusions of the audits were overblown, um, that, that they were, um, you know, that the facts of the audit themselves were not supporting the conclusions that were in there. So both sides are basically criticizing it. Um, and and uh, basically the, the substance of some of the reports were ins- in- inconsistent with the factual findings. Well, that is very now, troubling because, you know, it took so long to find out about this, I guess, dirty laundry, if you will. Uh, but, you know, this agency does often conduct management audits of departments. And, uh, and, and while the players may be gone, we've got, you know, the current auditor who himself has not had a very easy time. That is correct. You know, the, the current auditor, and I don't know whether it's just the basis of the position and the, and the realities of doing that job, but the current auditor also has been at odds, particularly with uh, the state house leadership. You know, he's had a series of, of hearings in which his uh, actions and, and uh, his abilities have been questioned, frankly. And, and so he's had to deal with that. Um, you know, and, and I should, before we move on, I should say that, you know, that uh, Ms. Yamani did have some responses. She said that they were not trying to sensationalize the reports back in the day, um, and that the um, she denied ever telling staff to go back and look for things that were wrong after the initial interviews found nothing and so on. So, you know, she, she did have responses to this, but um, yeah, but the report is troubling. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes of it. But thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read the story, visit civilbeat.org. For most of us, late nights are reserved for sleep, but we live in a 24-hour world, and the folks who bring us all the services we rely on work late into the night and early into the morning while most of us are in bed. For the third story in our sleep series, we're turning our attention to people who work the graveyard shift, and the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote brings you a familiar voice. There's a clock just behind you. Do you mind telling listeners what time it says? Are you asking me to say... It's 3.35 across the Hawaiian Islands. Those who tune in often to Morning Edition here on Hawaii Public Radio may have already recognized the voice or the catchphrase of Derek Malama. He has accompanied early morning risers in their kitchens and on their commutes for nearly 20 years. On this Thursday morning at 7 o'clock across the Hawaiian Islands, But few know that Malama starts his day hours before you hear his first broadcast. I set the alarm for 2.30 in the morning. Three alarms, actually. One is my Alexa. The second one is shaped like a globe, and it emanates light. And eventually the, the light gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And then the alarm goes off on that one. And if those two don't work, I have this battery-powered travel alarm. It's always good to have a battery-powered alarm in case the electricity goes out. 25% of this job is waking up on time at 2.30. The rest is, I don't want to say easy, but easier. So the hardest thing you do all day is the first thing you do all day. Yes, yeah. Can you believe that? Morning edition is not a problem after that. Malama tries to keep a strict 8 p.m. bedtime to ensure he gets enough sleep. But if he goes to bed too late or waits up too early, it can upend his whole day. So all I'm thinking about is when I go home, I'm going to go right to bed. I mean, that's all I can think of, you know, is, is going to sleep again. So it's constantly on my mind. I'm still not... Although I enjoy the job, I hate getting up at 2.30 in the morning, but I know that I need to do that to do the job. I'm not, I can't complain. I mean, this is a great job. I just have to adjust to it. So there's no such thing as getting used to insufficient sleep. That's Dr. Indira Gurubhagavatula, a sleep specialist with Penn Medicine. She's not surprised Malama still finds himself tired even after two decades on the job. 
our bodies aren't built to run on too little sleep, and we can't really train them otherwise. We instead accumulate what's called sleep debt over days, weeks, months, years, and the impact of that can be really significant. And folks like Malama who work nights or varying hours are more likely to rack up this sleep debt. The catch-all term for this group is shift workers. These are our truck drivers, our emergency responders, our overnight grocery stockers, and yes, our early morning radio hosts. They make up more than 20% of the American workforce. And Dr. Guru Bhagavatula says that people in these positions get on average five and a half hours of sleep rather than the recommended seven to nine. So what you have then is a population of people who are chronically heavily sleep deprived. Um, and the second way shift work can affect people is not just the length of sleep that they get, but the quality and depth of that sleep are also impacted. And this is for a number of reasons, but the regulation of sleep is built in such a way that as sleep length goes on later in the night is when we get those really deep stages of sleep. And if it's broken up and you're getting you know, a few hours here and a couple hours there, um, it's better than not getting you know, the, the full time that you need. But when it's broken up like that, um, it ends up being a little less deep. Um, and in addition, when you're not working, there are all of these other demands like childcare. I have patients who work night shifts, get up, take a small nap, and then they're up again getting their kids to school and then picking them up from after school and continuing to do the shopping and the cooking and everything else. So they're really working around the clock without a real opportunity to rest. And sleep deprivation doesn't just impact your own quality of life. It bleeds back into the workplace as well, lowering productivity and even making certain industries less safe. What then is an employer's responsibility to ensure that their workers are getting enough sleep? Dr. Amilda Wong is the program leader for the Center for Work and Fatigue Research with the CDC. So, so coming from the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, we always think about what the employer can do to make the workplace healthy and safe for their workers. And so we're, we were really born from the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which is a law that's passed by the U.S. Congress in 1970 to ensure safe workplace conditions around the country. And so that means that organizations are mandated to create safe workplaces for workers. We like to say that getting good, sufficient sleep is a shared responsibilities. And so the employer really needs to provide those opportunities for workers to get enough sleep. But sleep itself is tricky to regulate because workers sleep at home, not at the workplace. This makes sleep a bit of a gray area. So for the general population of U.S. workers, there are no current federal regulations on work hour limits. Instead, for workers in most industries, limitations on work hours to ensure that employees are rested exist on a case-by-case basis. In industries where extreme exhaustion poses a safety risk, such as a car crash due to drowsy driving, rules are in place to at least try to regulate sleep. The transportation sector has regulated hours of service for many years. So for example, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration regulates work hours for long haul commercial truck drivers. The Federal Aviation Administration regulates working hours for pilots and flight attendants. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission limits the duty of hours of workers at nuclear facilities. And several states have laws restricting mandatory overtime for nurses. Mandatory overtime means that nurses cannot say no when they are scheduled to work beyond the hours that are specified in their contract. Critics of mandatory overtime say that it promotes an unsafe work environment for both nurses and the patients under their care. This year, the Hawaii State Senate introduced a bill to limit mandatory overtime for nurses. The bill found that, quote, mandated overtime for nurses is necessitated by staffing practices that emphasize bare minimum, skeleton crews with no backup or relief in place to absorb any changes, such as an increase in patient admissions or a nurse calling in sick. Registered nurses and employers have an ethical responsibility to carefully consider the need for adequate rest and sleep when deciding whether to offer or accept work assignments. That bill did not pass. And regulations are even more rare in industries where the consequences of extreme exhaustion are harder to measure says Dr. Guru Bhagavatula. Making mistakes, having to do do-overs, being late for work, missing work days, or not just absenteeism, but what we call presenteeism, where you show up, but you're not actually working at full capacity, taking more sick days, 
And, and one very expensive problem at work is employee turnover. And immunologically, our ability to respond to infection or to vaccination and moderating that response so that it's not excessive. So the price we pay is enormous and it happens in multiple body systems and in multiple places throughout society, at home, individually, within families, communities, workplaces. Um, and if I could add that the way people cope, you know, if it's a, a shift work, is that they do what they have to do to chug through. Many people in shift work positions don't feel like they have a choice. If it's between giving up a night's rest or giving up a job, not everyone is in a position to opt for sleep. Dr. Wan says that may be especially true in Hawaii. Tourism is a, a large part of uh, the economy in Hawaii. So a lot of that uh, constitutes hospitality type uh, occupations. And so that requires around the clock care. So you might have a lot of shift work that's related to hospitality and service. I also understand that Hawaii has also one of the highest cost of living in the United States. And so folks might be working multiple jobs or working overtime. And so that really limits uh, their time to get good quality sleep. Hawaii has the highest rate of insufficient sleep nationwide. That's a problem for employers and employees. And Dr. Guru Bhagavatula says that for it to get better, it's going to take a fundamental shift in the way we think about sleep. We have a culture, and it's ubiquitous, where we relate to people who can operate without sleep or low amounts of sleep as a sign of valor or strength, some sign of um, character strength. And so um, as long as that persists, then it's going to be harder to take the steps that we need to take. But I think what really needs to happen is that every one of us needs to come to terms with the fact that sleep is a basic biological need, just like air, oxygen, food, water, um, and that we can't cheat sleep. There's no way around it. We have to allow ourselves sleep. There's no substitute. There's no shortcut. One possible step in the right direction? Workers and management could approach conversations about sleep in the same way they might talk about benefits or wages. And so what that means is that industries where it's not obvious and at the forefront, especially to people who are not necessarily on the front line, it's going to mean a lot of different stakeholders coming to the table, right? So the workers themselves or a representative, the supervisors, if there's a medical director, if there's a labor union involved. Um, so lots of different people that are, you know, maybe community members or people who use the services all have to come to the table and start talking about how common is the problem within the industry and then have people talk about what is it that they're experiencing when they're tired. Have they thought about quitting because they're not getting the opportunity to rest and what would make a meaningful difference? So it's gonna require real dialogue. Dr. Guru Bhagavatula says we're still a long way off and sleep hygiene education is also important. If employers implement schedules that are more favorable to sleep, employees need to use that time to sleep, which would not be a problem for our Morning Edition host, Derek Malama. You need a good night's sleep. I need a good night's sleep. I get as much as I can, and I love the weekends because I can sleep as long as I can. All right. What time is it now? <laughs> wow, we've spoken for a while. It's 3.54 across the Hawaiian Islands. How's that? I've never played that joke as many times as we tell I know, it. I know. <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, I, I created the monster, so I have to loop with it, right? <laughs> well, that was HVR Savannah Harriman Poet looking at what protections are in place to ensure night workers get the rest they need. We'll be picking up the topic of sleep tomorrow, looking at the all too familiar scourge, insomnia. What causes it? We want to hear from you. Have you ever struggled through a sleepless night? You can share your thoughts and sleep stories on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or fill out our sleep survey at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health, announcing the Pacific Rim Safety and Health Conference October 6th and 7th at the Sheraton Waikiki, labor.hawaii.gov H-I-O-S-H. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Mars Cafe, we catch up with Movers and Shakas, which just piloted the Hawaii Talent Onboarding Program, or High Top. We'll hear how the program evolved, get an inside view from a few participants, and see where Movers and Shakas is going with High Top Cohort 2. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Cross-Pollination, Flowers Across the Collection, artworks from Homa's vaults and galleries exploring the resonance of flowers in art. On view now, honolulumuseum.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And to follow our story on night workers, we've got another nocturnal creature for today's monument, the Black Crown Night Heron, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo Biology Professor Patrick Hart. The Aukuu, or black-crowned night heron, is the only heron that's common across the Hawaiian Islands that's an indigenous species, meaning that it's native here as well as other parts of the world. As their name implies, these herons have black crowns that run down their backs with light gray undersides, yellow legs, and piercing red eyes. Juveniles, though, look different from adults. They're mostly brown with light speckling. Aukuu can be found near most shallow, fresh, and saltwater areas where they feed on a variety of small aquatic animals like fish and frogs, and sometimes even mice and baby birds. When Aukuu are standing still, they often have a hunchback appearance, but their long neck becomes apparent when they walk. These graceful, broad-winged waterbirds can often be seen in flight in the mornings and evenings, which is also the best time to hear their loud, hoarse call. Black-crowned night herons are excellent at fishing and are even known to use pieces of bread or other objects to lure in fish with the bait, an unusual form of tool use in birds. Aukuu are one of the many birds mentioned in the Kumulipo, or Hawaiian creation chant. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering nature tours on Hawaii Island with adventures including swimming in private waterfalls, Mauna Kea stargazing, and exploring active volcanoes. More at hawaii-forest.com. Illusion and Reality is an exhibition at Honolulu's Downtown Art Center. The exhibit showcases photorealistic oil paintings by two artists from two generations. Charles Valoroso is a boomer and self-described art activist who recently returned home to Hawaii after 50 years in arts education in California. And Chris Siavon is a millennial who grew up on Oahu and recently graduated with a fine arts degree from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So how did they find common ground through their art? The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Villarosa and Vaughn in our studios. Can you talk a little bit about putting the show together? So I was kind of taking a little bit of a break from focusing primarily on my artwork, and I kind of just got lost track with my priorities and just working. And there was a handful of pieces that I never felt were quite finished. And I just was waiting for that kind of urge and that bug to bite and get me back into those pieces. So when Charles invited me to be in the show, I realized I'm like, this is the perfect opportunity to dive back in, revisit some old pieces with new skills, and just challenge myself to complete them in time. So I was able to finish a new piece and then show some old pieces that I haven't been able to show. 
Charles, how did you choose the pieces that are part of this exhibit? I was painting Aloha shirts since day one of art school because I met an old collector that was collecting vintage ephemera and just stuff yeah. from Hawaii. And my dad used to wear those old Kabe vintage shirts. So when I got into photorealism, the first year it was just starting out at this place called California College of Arts and Crafts in Oakland. And then the photorealists were already doing it in New York. And I thought, okay, I'm going to jump on this bandwagon because I could draw realistically, mm-hmm. for one thing, and I ended up majoring in graphic design. So when I selected my pieces, I just decided to dig up my old stuff, and I didn't create anything new. I was going to do it, but I thought, okay. And I came up with that idea of bridging the gap between the 60s, and yeah. when I met Chrysia, I said, this is it. <laughs> yeah. I just went back to my old stuff, and Chrissy's stuff is a new stuff. Mm-hmm. Charles, you were born on Kauai, yes. right? When Hawaii was still a territory, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you've been in the arts and arts education for the past 50 years. How have you seen art evolve over that time? Well, you know, getting back to Chrissy, when I met her, it's like, it's really unusual to see somebody painting, mm-hmm. you know, like with, with brushes and all that, because everybody's into like using... Photoshop and Adobe, you know, design and and all these, like, tech things. And and immediately I thought, this is where I'm going to use this concept of bridging the generations because I've been thinking about it for a long time, but I wasn't ready to implant it until I came back here. And maybe COVID was the, the, you know, the matrix that created this whole idea. And um, back to your question, it's changed a whole lot. It's really, like, to quantum leaps. And I think the, the biggest shift was about Y2K, 2000. Mm-hmm. It just accelerated like crazy. And now it's gone beyond what I had envisioned because it's, it's like social media is like, you know, presidents are using Twitter and everybody's like having all these dialogues all over yeah. the world. I mean, I got people all over the world texting me and, and showing me their work and stuff like that. So it's like I used to be into radio. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I think people are getting back now into hand painting because of the graffiti movement, mm-hmm. spray can, and, and just getting up on the scaffolding and doing these big, humongous paintings. That's a generational yeah. shift that I had observed from a lot of these younger guys mm-hmm. in Kakako. But we were doing it back in the 70s. I mean, I was doing stuff on the side of the wave and, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, just spray can and that kind of thing and, and hand painting because it was a different era. And Chrissy, your paintings in the exhibit are actual paintings, right? Mm-hmm. Hand-painted paintings. Mm-hmm. And you're a recent graduate of the University of Hawaii at Manoa, right? Mm-hmm. How do you perceive the role of art in today's world? Well, I have kind of a unique perspective of art mm-hmm. that I've developed over my own life and my education. I think it's a little bit unique to, to how I practice art, but ultimately I think human beings are creative beings. Like that's our defining characteristic if you look us up in the dictionary. So I think everyone practices art in their own way, in their own individual style. So for me, painting is kind of like following my natural instincts. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really interested in nature, and I think nature is the most magnificent artist. I've always been a total atom, animal geek. So um, when it comes to painting, for me, it's a way of me trying to figure out what my niche in my own ecosystem is, because I envy animals, like being able to just unknowingly support their whole ecosystem just by following their instincts. And so for me, something that was like exciting for my art career was when I was taking art history, like one of the entry level art history classes, I remember learning that when human beings developed the ability to think symbolically, It was a turning point, and we began simultaneously creating artwork. And so some of the earliest forms of painting are cave paintings, and those depicted the hunt. So for me, I felt like that was some of the earliest forms of artwork, and it was kind of like primitive human beings expressing their unique creative characteristics and celebrating the animals that they depended on. So I was excited about that idea. And when I started to paint my spearfishing hunt, I realized that this is kind of a contemporary continuation of that practice. And so 
for me, I'm trying to reconnect myself with the fact that I'm an intelligent mammal on this planet Earth, and how can I live my life to the fullest? So I really like to perceive art as being something instinctual and individual. And I know you are both artists that dip into other types of media, mm-hmm. but this exhibition focuses on photorealism. Mm-hmm. When you dive into your photorealistic pieces, what's the most important thing to getting everything as accurate as you are trying to get? Charles, in your particular pieces, what to you is the most important thing to get right? I like realism because when I first realized I could draw well, that's when people started calling me an artist. And I was in the first grade. I went to a Catholic school, okay? The nuns really encouraged me to go into the arts, but everybody else was saying, after I got to high school, where are you going to go to college, right? Yeah. And they said, you know, I'm going to go to art school. And it's like, you're going to starve, okay? Yeah. So getting back to, again, the photorealism thing, I gravitate towards that because that's one way I could have proven that I'm really interested in drawing, not talking about it or expressing myself at that time. And when I went to my first year, photorealism had just emerged because it was kind of like a backlash to pop art Mm -hmm. and art history in general. They were getting out of the Impressionist mode or the salon style, and they were just taking, literally, drugstore photographs and replicated as tight as you can. Mm -hmm. And I could name some of the few artists that I admired. Robert Bechtel was one of my teachers in New York. They were like, you know, Chuck Close and a lot of people that painted a lot of urban. But when I got there, it's like I was from Hawaii, and I thought, okay, what's going to be my shtick, my voice, my vision? And when I found the Aloha shirts, I I used that. But I got into this illusionistic thing, too, where it's flat, but it's also dimensional. And using the airbrush, I was able to create this drop shadow. And it was really important for me to make it as what they call in French art, trompe l'oeil, fool the eye kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like another bridge between realism and what was surrealism at that time. So I was really interested in the art history and I tried to sort of like, you know, define it by saying, okay, I am a photorealist. Mm-hmm. I don't draw from nature. I'm not a plain air painter. I paint from photographs. Mm-hmm. And I like to replicate it as, as tight as I can. And to this day, I'm doing the same thing. I guess I started doing the, the Aloha shirts because when I had my first exhibit on Kauai, I sold a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the rock and roll guys on, yeah. on Kauai were buying it like crazy. Yeah. I sort of settled there, and then I kind of like stopped painting for a while until I came back here. And I was just kind of doing smaller works and all that, but now that I'm seeing how aggressive the millennials are in marketing, <laughs> I thought, I better get my act together. Uh-huh. <laughs> so anyway, photorealism to me is my definitive style yeah. at this point. And Chrissy, how about for you? Your paintings are of a woman spearfishing, mm-hmm. and I imagine when you deal with light and the ocean, there's a lot more trickiness that goes along with that. So what's most important for you when you're doing your photorealism work? Uh, it's so much fun. <laughs> so when I see, I love, I, I love painting photorealism because I think it makes me so excited about my day-to-day reality. Mm-hmm. I started painting this series because I would be out spearfishing with my boyfriend and I just remember just like my eyes just felt like dazzled by what I was seeing in the moment and I was like, I need to capture this. And when I first went to college, I I studied some um, documentary filmmaking and then I studied marine biology. I realized I didn't want to be in the film industry or a scientist. So I kind of combined those two like perspectives and knowledges into my painting. And this is how I've been able to just combine my life experiences and express myself in a medium that feels right. So with photorealism, I'm not as interested in being a human printer. I don't want it to be perfect. Mm-hmm. I just, I like the idea of human expression and just the hands made in this like instant gratification world and culture that we live in. I like the idea of seeing something slowly be built through layers and time. 
and how something can go from so messy because like when I start I'm very very fluid and messy and I like working on large-scale paintings so I can move across the canvas and be not super fussy about it and then clean it up gradually into like something that seems pretty okay (laughs) Um, so it's not about being perfect I guess it's just sharing my perspective and the beauty that I see in those moments and then of course you know painting underwater scenes is is so much fun because you get so much light play Mm -hmm. on the one hand I get to dive into like very intricate details with fish like you know on their scales on their eyes and especially when the light is hitting the human skin tones and the fish like you just have so much detail to play with and then on the surface you get this really abstract playground so it kind of gives me a taste of both worlds both abstraction and realism and so it's it's just it's been a very comfortable playground for me (laughs) awesome i like the word playground yeah yeah Yeah. thank Thank you you so much for your time thank you for having us Uh, we were talking to artists charles villarosa and chris yvonne Uh, They were chatting with HPR's Russell Subiono. If you want to catch their Illusion and Reality exhibit at Honolulu's Downtown Art Center, you only have a few days left to do it. Last day for the exhibit is this Saturday, August 27th. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, we hear from the head of the Small Business Administration, who is in the islands this week. We do welcome feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works too. Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you've heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Mm-hmm.